is the Angel Next Door podcast, where we will talk about all things angel investing, what it is, who does it, how do we find them, what does it mean to invest in an early stage company. If you have ever wondered how you can affect the change you want to see in the world, then tune in to learn more. In today's special episode, I'm talking to Commissioner Hester Purse. Commissioner Purse is one of the five commissioners at the Securities and Exchange Commission and was appointed in January of 2018. She has an impressive background, which you can read about on the SEC's website, including graduating from Yale Law School and, among other positions, was the senior counsel on the U.S. Senate Committee for Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs. In our conversation, we talk about how decisions get made at the SEC, and I was surprised to learn that the five commissioners are not allowed to meet unless all five of them are meeting together. We cover the fall of Silicon Valley Bank, how more funding needs to go to underrepresented founders, and she gives us her thoughts on the accredited investor definition. In the episode, I mentioned the testimony that my friend and fellow ACA board member Eli Velasquez gave at the House Financial Services Subcommittee on Capital Markets in February. But I didn't go into a lot of detail. So if you want to hear more on that, I did a quick 10-minute episode in March telling Eli's story and how he spent 20 years as a lawyer not quite meeting the financial thresholds to be an angel and watching opportunities pass him by. Be sure to check that out if you haven't listened yet. Enjoy the show. Well, Commissioner Purse, thank you for coming and welcome to the Angel Next Door podcast. Well, thank you, Marcia. It's great to be here. And um, I do have to start out with my disclaimer, which is that my views are my own views and not necessarily those of the SEC or my fellow commissioners. Excellent. Thank you for that. Well, as you may know, the Angel Next Door podcast, which I know we talked about when we met a little bit in Raleigh a couple of weeks ago, is about how do people become angel investors? Why would they become angel investors? And it's really about how can people be more informed angels? So I am super excited to have you on the show and be able to tell us a little bit about your journey and how you have now become a commissioner at the Securities and Exchange Commission. And we'll talk a little bit about some of the nuances of what angels should know about being an angel investor. So for our listeners that may not be aware, you are one of five SEC commissioners, and each commissioner is appointed for a term of five years. And to ensure that the commission remains nonpartisan, no more than three commissioners may belong to the same political party. And the president also designates one of the commissioners to be chair. So maybe you can just start by kind of telling us a little bit about your journey and how you got here. Sure. Well, I was at the SEC before, so this is my second time at the SEC. I started as a young securities attorney at a private law firm and worked with a lot of people who had worked at the SEC. Securities was an area that was interesting to me because I have a background in economics and it seemed to mesh well with you know wanting to understand how markets work and really appreciating the value of markets and so securities was a natural area for me and then my law firm just did a lot of securities work so i i met lots of people with connections to the sec decided that it made sense to spend some time working at the agency even though that wasn't something i had, had really intended to do but realized after getting to the SEC as a staff attorney, that it really is important to see from the inside how the agency works because each agency has its own personality and its own way of, of 
handling issues, way of providing guidance, history. And so it it was really nice to get a chance to see that from within. I spent eight years at the agency and then left and ended up having the opportunity to come back as a commissioner. I was immediately before this job was was doing research on financial regulation, working with a lot of economists and, and others on thinking about how to do regulation well, what the pitfalls are and, and what can be done to address those pitfalls and, and to make regulation work better and more efficiently. So that was a good background to have for, for coming here. And I also spent some time in the middle there working on the Hill, working for the Senate Banking Committee actually during and, and immediately after the financial crisis. So that was quite a learning experience and has served me well also in this job because I have a real appreciation for the importance of, of us taking seriously the mandates that Congress gives us and not stepping outside those mandates. That's great. And so can you paint a picture for our listeners of what it's like to be an SEC commissioner? Like how do you interact with the fellow commissioners and especially if you have a difference of opinion? Yeah, the one thing that a lot of people don't realize about the commission is that there are five of us, but we're not all allowed to meet together in the same room unless it's a public meeting or it's a publicly disclosed closed meeting to discuss enforcement matters. So all of our rulemaking meetings where the five of us are there are open to the public. And so a lot of the negotiation is done bilaterally or done through our staff. And in some ways, that's inconvenient. It would be nice if we could all sit down together in a, in a room and hash things out. But there is a value to having the public be participating and, and aware of what the negotiations are, what the discussions are. And so that's kind of the, the background for why we have the Sunshine Act. You know, we're all talking to a lot of people, investors. We're talking to companies. We're talking to anyone who has sort of an interest in in what we're working on. And I'm trying to meet as many people who are affected by our rules and regulations. And, and my colleagues are all doing the same. So we take all of that information that we collect and we I benefit from the experiences and background of my colleagues. And I think it does really lead to better decision-making. I have really strong views on on many things, but I've always managed to learn something new from each one of my colleagues. You know, some of them, we've got a couple commissioners now who come from families that ran small businesses. So that has been a really helpful window into what it's like and the challenges of raising capital. Everyone brings something different to the table. So I really like this form of, of decision-making. And there is so much that the SEC covers. If you think about all of the public companies, which of course we hear a lot about because they're in the news and a lot of them are very large, but then you think about all of the businesses that are private and there's so many. So you're, you're really dealing with a lot and and everything in between, right? Yeah, we are. And I think sometimes this agency can get a little bit too focused on the biggest companies, we we end up thinking a lot about the largest public companies. And we do forget sometimes that there's this whole other universe of companies out there that really does require us to think a bit differently. And, and so I think that that's something that over the years, Congress has tried to push us 
to think a little bit more creatively about how smaller companies, smaller public companies and private companies can raise capital in ways that make sense, how we can be more flexible when when we're dealing with companies that are not these large, big name companies that that all of us think about on a daily basis. Right. And I know that one of the things we talked about a couple of weeks ago was about fraud. And we hear a lot about that and the prevention of fraud and protection against fraud. And one of the greatest challenges that ACA has is overcoming this perception of fraud within the angel marketplace. And although a well-managed diversified portfolio data indicates that angel investing can lead to, you know, 20 plus return over time, angels do lose some or all of their funding in more than half of their investments. But that doesn't necessarily mean that fraud has occurred. But we find that there's this perception that a failure is also fraud. So what are your thoughts that you could offer the ACA to counter this? Yeah, That's such an important point, remembering that just because something doesn't doesn't succeed doesn't mean that there's fraud that caused that failure. And it's good to remind people that part of what makes, I think, this country such an exciting place to build a business is that people do accept that sometimes things fail and sometimes out of those initial failures come future successes. And so it's a place where people can have second chances and can can try again. There are lots of entrepreneurs who, who have great successes after having not succeeded. So yeah making that distinction between fraud and failure is is just very important. I think part of what has led to the perception that there's a lot of fraud in the private markets is a lack of interaction with people who are actively engaged in the private markets. And that's where I think the Angel Capital Association and others who are who are every day investing in those markets can be really helpful and telling us their stories, you know, and and being honest. Yeah, we see many instances in which a particular company doesn't succeed, but that doesn't mean that people who invest in those companies that don't succeed just give up and and go home and and stop investing in the private markets. That is part of what is expected and anticipated. And I think sharing those experiences, sharing the successes and the failures, providing real-life stories those kinds of things, I think, have been very helpful for me in my role as commissioner, hearing from people directly involved in these markets. And I think they're, it's really important for, for my colleagues to hear those same stories. Absolutely. And you make a good point with sometimes the failure is the lesson and all of the learnings that they needed in order to go out and create that next thing that is a hit. <laughs> and maybe right. not a home run, but at least a couple, a couple hits. And since we are talking about some failures, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you a little bit about the recent bank failures. We were pretty rocked uh, about the Silicon Valley and Signature Bank failures. And, you know, this is the second and third largest in U.S. history behind the 2008 failure of Washington Mutual. And while a run on a bank by current depositors can clearly accelerate negative trends, we must also be mindful of the responsible support of the startup ecosystem that can and should come from venture capitalists, angels, and the other stakeholders. Can you speak to the role that angels and other stakeholders have in ensuring adequate capital formation remains despite operating in this suboptimal environment? 
Yeah, I think one of the things that has become clear to me after so many years thinking about financial regulation and, and the financial markets is that having a variety of sources of funding is very important. Different companies are going to rely on different sources of funding at different stages in their lives. And for some companies, for some founders, they'll have access to one source of capital, but not to another. And so when we do see problems happen with with a particularly large provider of capital, source of capital in the ecosystem, a term I don't love, but I think I think is is apt here, then you know, you realize it really is important that there are others that can step in and fill fill that void. And so I guess from my perspective, what this has really brought home is is the importance of just doing everything that I can in my role as a commissioner to try to support a variety of sources of capital and to support the different investors who are willing to come in at different times to provide capital and, and, you know, supporting them by building a regulatory framework that makes sense, that is protective of investors, but also keeps those capital spigots flowing. Yeah. And that makes a lot of sense when we talk about just having a diversified portfolio of our own investments. We talk about how, you know, having these different different sources is so important. I mean, it it kind of translates over to almost everything. You don't want to put, I guess, all your eggs in the proverbial basket here, right? It does. And I think one thing about this, again, the U.S. really is so privilege to have such a variety of sources of capital. We aren't reliant solely on banks. Banks play a really important role in the financial system. And and, and when there are problems in the banking system, everyone pays attention. But we do have the real advantage of having built this very healthy, very active capital raising system that involves lots of investors, lots of different types of investors. And I think that's that's something that's so precious that we have to make sure we maintain in this country. I completely agree. And that really goes to my next question, which is around the accredited investor definition. And actually earlier this week, Congresswoman Wagner was on the show and we talked quite a bit about this as she recently had a hearing where one of our board members from the Angel Capital Association, Eli Velasquez, testified about his level of ability to hit the accredited investor definition minimums and how he spent about 20 years being about $20,000 away from that that minimum, even though he was an IP attorney for startups. And so that's a place in my heart that I really care about and making sure that we can at least expand the definition with levels of sophistication. Maybe, and I know we talked about this a little bit before, but maybe you can talk a little bit about your thoughts on that and how that would equate to making it accessible for more people to participate. That's an amazing story that you just told. And I think it does repeat itself over and over. You see people who who want to be able to participate as investors, as accredited investors, and they can't. And so what I worry about is is that there's a move to try to raise the thresholds for accredited investors. And I've heard so many stories about with the current thresholds being problematic that I that I'm concerned that if we raise the thresholds, 
we'll have even even more problems. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, which is a place where the salaries simply are not as high as they are on the coasts. And so this is something that I think about a lot. You can have very, very high earning professionals who don't meet the standards. And and so they are unable to invest in their communities. And so you see more and more of the action happening on the coasts and not in the middle of the country. So what I have tried to argue for is thinking about ways that we can measure sophistication other than through wealth and income. We made a little bit of progress a couple of years ago by pulling in some financial professionals, but I think there's much more that we can do on that front. And, you know, look, I think people who who take a different view than I do, I'm, I'm of the view that the accredited investor standard is is inherently problematic because you just can't tell people that they're not allowed to invest in things. In my in my ideal world, you wouldn't be able to tell people that. But if we're going to have a standard, then yes, let's look for other ways to open the doors to people who clearly do have the sophistication but just don't meet those those numerical thresholds. Yes, I I couldn't agree more. And the education part is just so important because in some cases, because we're talking about investing, we're talking about money and we're talking about finances and financials. So in a lot of cases, you'll see where people will talk more about, well, I want to see their financials. I want to have them to have audited financials for the last three years or whatever. But in some cases, these these companies are so small and there's so many other things to consider, like the valuation, the terms, is the founder coachable? Do they, does the management team have experience? Does the product actually work? <laughs> you know, I mean, there's just so many things, the barrier to entry into the marketplace, all of these things in addition to that. So I think that's, you know, one of the things that we try to do at the ACA is to educate through the Ann and Bill Payne ACA Angel University, we have a lot of different types of classes that kind of cover all of these things that can help angels really understand what they're investing in. And, you know, I I think if we can expand the definition to include those measures of sophistication, we will actually help the entire angel ecosystem because we will have kind of raise that standard on the education level. Just because you have a lot of money doesn't mean you know what you're doing. No, that's certainly true. And I think if we can look to education as a basis, then it will address some of the concerns that that people have about just opening the doors wide. It will actually, you know, people will go into investing in the private markets armed with knowledge about what they should be looking for armed with knowledge about what the red flags are and what the what the indicators of of potential success are. So I think that that is a really promising avenue for us to go down. It's hard to write something like that into a regulation, which is why we end up with these very simple thresholds. It's much harder to try to assess how knowledgeable someone is, but but I think there are a lot of people who are who are looking at different ways of doing that. And so I think that's really an area that's worth exploring. Yeah, totally. And I can't let you go without asking you a little bit more about, I know that the SEC Office of the Advocate for Small Business Capital Formation, they recently released their annual report In that report, the SEC notes that 43.2% of small businesses are women-owned. 
But yet, according to Bloomberg, the amount of annual funding that goes to women entrepreneurs is only about 3%. And so, you know, I personally have been a huge advocate for this. I am a co-founder of the ACA's Growing Women's Capital Group, where we try to highlight all of the groups and investors that are out there who want to invest in women-like companies. And, you know, we try to support female founders to be able to get more funding. So can you speak to the importance of the representation of women and people of color in diversifying the market? Well, I always like to look at our our capital markets as a national treasure, and it's one that really should be shared by everyone. And that's I'm trying to encourage people to be investors, people who who never before have invested, and whose parents and grandparents may never have invested. But same too with founders, right? This we have this wealth of investor money out there, and. The beauty of the capital markets is that they can help that money to flow to the highest and best use. And sometimes that highest and best use is going to be a little bit difficult to find. And so we need to really get the word out there to founders that that there are these pools of capital out there. And we need to get word out there to investors that Sometimes they need to go looking in places that they might not have thought to look. And so I really am optimistic that if if we continue to get the word out there, that we will enable capital to flow the way it should and to find the companies that need it most and that can put that money to the best use. And that will then transform communities. And I think this points back to to something that I find so encouraging with angel investors is that it is people who have built companies and want to pour back into other companies. And so that then broadens the network and enables, again, new communities to benefit from, from the capital markets. I think it's a really healthy it's a healthy process and we just need to nudge that process along. And I think it will, will then do its magic. I couldn't agree more. I mean, I love the idea of entrepreneurs who have done well and then they want to give back and they want to, you know, put it back into other entrepreneurs and helping them to be successful. And it's like the pay it forward and give back mentality all at the same time. Yeah. It's really, it's really an exciting process to watch and, I'm sitting on the sidelines, but I love watching those stories unfold. Well, Commissioner Purse, thank you so much for joining me today and being here at the Angel Next Door podcast. Thank you so much for all the work that you're doing. Thank you so much for having me. It's been a, it's been a lot of fun. If we want to be the change we want to see in the world, we need to invest in the change we want to see in the world. And what's the best way to learn more about that? Sign up for a class at the Ann and Bill Payne ACA Angel University. Classes are offered often. Look at our website, angelcapitalassociation.org for the schedule. We offer everything from angel investing basics, which include fundamentals, risks, due diligence, term sheets, valuations, returns, and portfolio strategy. And we also get into a deeper dive with capitalization tables, startup boards, and exit strategies. And if you're not already a member of the Angel Capital Association, you can become one for as little as $250 for the year. And that will give you access to discounts, free webinars, networking, and much more. We'd love to have you join us.
The Angel Next Door podcast is informational and not intended to serve as legal, tax, accounting, or investing advice. Our speakers and hosts are thoughtfully selected for their educational value, but their opinions are their own and do not necessarily represent the views of the Angel Capital Association, and the Angel Capital Association does not specifically endorse the use of presenters' products or services. Listeners of the podcast should consult their own tax, investing, legal, or accounting advisors before making important financial decisions. All warranties, including accuracy, completeness, and suitability for specific purpose, are disclaimed.